see in our passage in the Gospel of Matthew, the fulfillment of the prophecies made about the Messiah who would be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, and we see uh, a few references to that in this passage in Isaiah 49. I'll give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 12. God gives us his word for our good, and he gives it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Perfect and inerrant, infallible. Uh, God will, God's word will not return to him void. Let us give our attention to its reading. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heart, heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sion. Amen. May God bless this reading of his word. And then if you would go to our sermon text this morning in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, we will read through verse 17, Matthew 8, verses 5 through 17. Once again, God's holy word, the grass will wither, the flowers will fall, the word of the Lord will endure forever. Matthew 8, verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. 
But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us bow once more in prayer. And so, great God, we come before your word. It is not uh, a calendar. It is not uh, holidays, days off, vacations. It is not certain points of the year which give us spiritual health. It is you by your Holy Spirit. And thus we come before your word and we ask in full reliance and faith that by your spirit you would work through your word and build us up in the faith and in your truth. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would do this today and for the rest of our lives, that we may live lives which honor and glorify you. Speak through your servant now, and may he declare the truth of your word. May human wisdom and human thoughts fall to the ground and be forgotten forever. But might you build up your church in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we know it well. At the start of each new year, we look back and we look ahead. There's something about the the turning of the calendar that has us encouraged about new beginnings. And uh, we often look back, we think, well, what did we do in this past year? What are some things we accomplished? What are some things that that leave us satisfied with the the work of our hands? Probably more earnestly uh, and with more vigor and excitement, we say, what do I want to do in this coming year? All, all of these things can be good and appropriate in, in their proper place. It's, of course, good to be organized, uh, to have goals, to be checking things off the list, to feel like we're moving along and getting things uh, accomplished, working hard for the glory of God, using our time wisely, all of those things. However, there is a sense in which our deepest callings, those things which are most fundamental to our lives in Christ, never change. We always need to trust God's Word and grow in our trust of God's Word. We always must come to Christ. We must continue to come to the Savior and the Lord, to lean on Him and to rely upon Him to mortify our old sinful nature, which as uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says, we must do battle against it all of our lives to our very 
last breath. We never check that off the list, fighting our sin and our sinful nature. Uh, I heard one pastor describe it this way, that life is a, a journey, but it's also a loop that repeats for the Christian. So it's a line, but a loop. It's a, a loopy line, as he described it. And at the end of it all, at the end of our lives, the, the emphases and constraints of time will fade away. We're going to sing that hymn at the end of the sermon. The sands of time are sinking. At the end of our lives, the emphases, the constraints of time will fade away as we enter into the eternal bliss, as we behold the beauty of the Savior forever. And the call of faith is to behold the beauty of that Savior now. And as we do so, even now, as we behold the Savior in his glory, we see that he is worthy of our trust each and every day, that he is also worthy of our awe and our love and our devotion. The three movements that we'll emphasize this morning, first, a, a marvelous faith, a marvelous faith. Secondly, a stunning warning. And thirdly, a wonderful Savior. The first, a marvelous faith. Jesus is here working in Capernaum, which functions as something like a home base for his ministry, his, his years of ministry before he moves to Jerusalem at the end of his life. And he is greeted by this centurion. Centurions were regarded as something like the military backbone of the, the, the Roman Empire. Scholar D.A. Carson says they were the ones who would maintain discipline and execute orders, kind of the, the arms and legs of, of Caesar, getting things done. So it's a bit surprising, a bit jolting to have this centurion approach Jesus in the manner that he does. He addresses him as, as Lord. So right off the bat, we're, we're greeted with a humility of this man who comes with some authority. This humility will only deepen, or we'll see how deep it is, as he interacts with Jesus and gives us a, a model of faith. He comes to Jesus because he is in anguish. He is in anguish because of the anguish and suffering of, of his servant. The term here for servant is an affectionate term. It's, it's boy. My boy is, is suffering. He's paralyzed at home, and he's, he's suffering in, in great pain. When we read the, the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke of this centurion, we read that he was a good man, a generous man, who had provided even for the, the religious life of the Israelites who were uh, in, in this community. So although this is a, a servant, it is a servant boy for whom he has uh, great affection. He wants him to be free of his suffering. And we, of course, relate to the centurion here. Uh, none of us want loved ones to be suffering or in pain or to be sick even. In fact, we often say that, uh, that if we could, we would take upon ourselves the suffering, the sickness of the pain of those whom we love uh, the most. The fact that he goes to Jesus, that the centurion goes to Jesus, reveals or begins to reveal what he believes about Jesus, that in Christ he will find healing or power to heal. He comes to him in, in the needfulness of his heart and simply lays the matter before him. My, my boy is sick, suffering. He's paralyzed. He is in anguish. So Jesus says, I will come and heal him. This is a very interesting statement by Jesus. 
And difficult to say exactly what's going on here. One of two things. He's either just saying the matter plainly, I I will come and heal him, or he he puts it to the centurion almost as a a test to get to the depth of the, the centurion's faith. What is he really after here? And so Jesus basically says, I, that is I, the one who is ministering now as the one who proclaims himself to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the one who has been sent uh, to the lost sheep of Israel, I will come and, and heal him, testing the centurion's faith a little bit. And what we see is a, a, a humble response, an extremely humble and faith-filled response. He says, Jesus, you don't need to come. And he says, I am not worthy to have you come to my house. Now, imagine this. Jesus says, I will do what you want me to do. I will come and I, I will do that. I will, I will make sure that it happens. He says, I, I, I don't need you to do all of that. I just need you to, to speak. And what I need from you can be done. You would imagine, it, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, that a lot of scholars or interpreters would say, well, what the centurion is doing here is he's nervous about the ritual uncleanness that would be brought upon Jesus by coming to this Gentile's home. And uh, I think that that's, that's probably not what's going on here. It's simply he is recognizing the authority, the glory, the worthiness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to do with ritual uncleanness. Oh, if this Jew comes into my house, it will render him ritually unclean. I also think that's one of the reasons why Matthew put the, the last passage right before this one where uh, he, Jesus, reaches out and touches the leper and Jesus does not become unclean. The leper becomes clean. Now, Jesus, as the Lord, as the God-man, operates in a way that transcends all of those boundaries and regulations. He does not become unclean when he comes in contact with one who is himself unclean. So that's not the concern here, and and that's not the concern of the centurion. He's just looking at Jesus and seeing him as so glorious, so worthy. He says, "I, I am simply unworthy to have you come to my house. Now, this is where we begin to see the, 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 the marvel of his faith. Of course, he has a good deal of authority, but he so humbles himself before Jesus. And there we begin to see a, a wonderful picture for ourselves. There is no earthly authority that can hold a candle to who Jesus is. No earthly position of power that becomes impressive to Jesus. Position does not qualify us to come to Jesus. Our earthly station in life or our earthly accomplishments or who we are or the notoriety that one has does not qualify one to come to Jesus. This man, as we will see, carries with himself the very authority of the emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar. He carries with himself that authority, and that is not what qualifies him to come to Jesus. Samuel Rutherford says this, I find that our wants qualify us for Christ. Why can this man come to Jesus? Not because of his authority or place in life, but because he is in need and he knows that he is in need. That's what qualifies him to come to Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you 
in that sense, qualified to come to the Savior? Do you come to him recognizing that you are in need? That you need the blessing, the life, the salvation, the grace that only comes from Christ. Do you have that kind of faith? We see even more depth of of his faith in Christ and and in Christ's authority and glory. The, the, The Roman system really worked in ways that I've alluded to. And we see in, in verse 9, the, the, the soldier has penetrated in a remarkable way the truth of who Jesus is. His reasoning and his statement in verse 9 are profound. He's not saying that, Jesus, you and I are kind of similar. We have this similar authority to get things done. That's not really the, the, the fullest sense of what he says there in verse 9. He says, I too am a man under authority. I say go, he goes. I say come, he comes. I say do this, and it is done. He's not saying, Jesus, you and I are really similar here. What he's saying is, I understand on whose authority you are operating. He's saying, in my case, I operate under the authority of the emperor. Uh, I, I go from place to place as his hands and his feet. And thus, when I say things, soldiers obey, because they understand that to disobey me would be to disobey Caesar himself. And so it is a statement of his faith because he's saying, Jesus, I know that you come on the authority of God. I know that that is the one for whom you speak. And thus you can rebuke the winds, the waves, the sicknesses, because the one who has created all things, you come on his authority. And thus if you speak, diseases will flee at your call. That is the kind of power that you have, and that is the kind of faith that this centurion has. And so we come to this commendation by Jesus, which is something that has to catch our eye. And when we read that Jesus marveled at this man's faith. The God-man, we should assume that Christ as the God-man is not easily going to show forth this kind of, of, of emotion. Now, Jesus is not caught off guard, right? And he knows the depth and the truth of things in ways that we'll, we'll never even understand. And yet, under the inspiration of the Spirit, we read, he marveled at the faith of this centurion. His faith was so unique that Jesus was truly delighted in his faith. He was pleased with his faith. Other instances of this word marvel or, or amaze, amazement, Pilate was amazed. He marveled when, when Jesus did not answer his questions directly. Right? It, it amazed Pilate because he's saying, this guy has a chance to save his life. He, he knows that I don't necessarily see him as all that guilty, but he's not making a case for himself. Pilate marveled at that moment. The Apostle Paul marveled that the Galatians had abandoned or seemingly had abandoned the truth of the gospel. The very thing by which they were saved when Paul hears of the false teaching that had crept into the Galatian churches, he was amazed. Same word. At the day of Pentecost when uh, the Spirit descends on the people of God and there is speaking in in other human languages, those who are witnessing it are amazed. That's the kind of, uh, that's this word that Matthew uses to describe Jesus' commendation and admiration of this centurion's faith. 
What's so unique about his faith? Well, as I said before, he has penetrated to a startling degree the reality of who Jesus is here early on in the ministry of Christ. We live on the other side of the cross, the resurrection, the giving of the New Testament scriptures. So we have this wonderful lens into these deep realities of Christ. But here, this centurion has has gone so deep into the reality of who Christ is. And Jesus is delighted with it. It's a thick faith, an active faith, a vital, a sturdy faith. William Hendrickson says this, to be sure, in Israel, Jesus had found faith, but not a combination of in one person a love so affectionate, a considerateness so thoughtful, and insight so penetrating, a humility so outstanding, and a trust so unlimited. He receives from Christ commendation. Why? Because of how far his faith had penetrated the reality of who Jesus is. We see from this that Christ and uh, the triune God himself delights in the faith that he gives. The triune God delights in the faith that he creates. Even though faith is a gift of God, Christ delights in it. He marvels, in one sense, at it. Matthew Henry says this, Jesus knew the centurion's faith, for he had wrought it. But it was great and excellent. It was rare and uncommon. And Christ spoke of it as wonderful to to teach us what to admire. That's what it does. To teach us what to admire, what to seek after. Henry goes on, not worldly pomp and decorations, but the beauty of holiness and the ornaments which are in the sight of God of great price. So we must seek the depth of faith that would cause our Savior to delight in us this way. That's one of the big lessons that we see in this this passage. We are to, by God's grace, seek the kind of faith that causes the Savior to delight in us. A faith which penetrates more deeply the reality of who Jesus is. A faith which is energized by affectionate love, with outstanding humility, with unlimited trust. A faith which goes beyond what one might expect to find in oneself. A truly marvelous faith. This is a precious grace. Faith that in which the, the God of the universe delights. So it must be sought. It must be sought in reliance upon God. It must be sought through prayer. It must be sought through the experiences of our lives into which God brings us. We must value faith. We must seek to be rich in faith more than we seek to be rich in riches, in silver and gold. 1 Peter 1 Peter speaks of the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes families, are, and we know the, the terrible realities of, of, of sickness and affliction in this life, and uh, a family comes into a, a certain situation where someone is really sick, is going to need a, a ton of treatment, 
And oftentimes, families will, without hesitation, run headlong into, into treatments that will uh, cost tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they will do it. Why? Because of the value of life. They say, well, we're going to do whatever we can in order to, to enjoy life together if the Lord will give it or whatever uh, mindset they're coming from. Oftentimes, it's just we want this person to live longer. They valued life more than gold and silver. Breaths that you take, extremely valuable, right? But what is more valuable than even that? Faith is more valuable than gold and silver. We should place the greatest value on our faith, and thus we rely upon God to grant it to us. We'll move quickly then through the rest of this passage. Secondly, a stunning warning a stunning warning. The, the, the centurion was not descended from Abraham, and so we read of uh, this promise, this prophecy being fulfilled that the Messiah would gather his people from all the corners of the earth. It is too light a thing, we read in Isaiah chapter 49, that you should only be sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. But we have to understand the way in which Jesus' words operate especially for us this morning. Now, we count it a great blessing that the gospel goes forth to the nations, that God has called people from all four corners of the earth, and the the, the missional vision and life of the church, that the gospel is to be preached and proclaimed to the lost. But there's also a warning, isn't there? There's a warning to the covenant community. Jesus does not completely abolish the sense of of a covenant community, right? He's talking about people who will come and sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who were uh, the the Jewish patriarchs, who were themselves, of course, the recipients of the promised part of the covenant community. But it is a warning to those who are in, in the covenant community. And to us today, this functions as a warning for those who are in the visible church. Jesus warns us, not to rest in those things which are blessings of proximity to salvation. Don't rest in covenant membership, in the sacraments, in church attendance, in sitting under the word, in fellowshipping with believers. Don't make those things the object of your faith. Don't make those things the cornerstone of your faith. Those are all good things, but what are they meant to be used for? They are meant to be a support system for your faith, and your faith needs to be in Christ. Your trust needs to be in Jesus, the Savior, the Lord. And so Jesus could not be clearer. He could not be more serious with his words that there will be those within the covenant community that have a proximity to the blessings of salvation, but they end up in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping. What, What is that? It is the sorrow of a totally lost hope. Think of in in Dante's Inferno as they're entering hell, and it says above it, abandon all hope ye who enter here. It's the place of no hope. There will be weeping. There will also be gnashing of teeth, the anguish of the punishment of sin, excruciating pain and frenzied anger. We don't 
mention these things because we like to or we revel in the doctrine of hell. Hell is an utterly heartbreaking reality. Heartbreaking reality. But it is reality nonetheless. It is a reality that is to be approached with tears, with an earnestness of of an appeal to the lost to run to the grace of the Savior. It is occasion when we are confronted with this reality in God's word, it is occasion to plea with the sinner, to run to Jesus Christ, to embrace him with a faith that is like the centurion. For there you will find a Savior who is able to save, but also willing to save the humble and repentant. He is filled with love and grace and compassion, but he only grants his salvation to those who have faith. Verse 12 or verse 13, Jesus says what? May it be done for you as you have believed. So what is this? It's a call to faith. It's a call to belief. Jesus teaches us that the blessings of his salvation flow to those who have faith. You must believe. Your faith must be in Jesus Christ. You must rest upon him by trusting in his work at the cross for sinners. And why would we do so? We would do so because he is a wonderful savior. He's a wonderful savior. And that's the last part that we'll think about this morning. He's a wonderful savior. He has unquestioned authority. And that's what we see when he heals Peter's mother-in-law with a simple touch of, of the hand. She instantly rises and serves him. And that shows that it was not a fake healing. It's not a partial healing. You'll see that on the, on the television when there's, a, when there's a healer. You'll see they'll parade these people up, these poor people up, and, and they'll, they'll proclaim that there's healing, but then you hear about it later in their lives. Uh, it was really kind of the excitement of the moment that allowed them to maybe walk in a way that's a little bit better than they had in the past. She instantly rises. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the King of creation. Deuteronomy 32 says this, See that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Jesus is himself God, the second person of the Trinity, operating with this level of authority and power to heal. He will rebuke the winds and the waves in just a few passages, and he can rebuke the sicknesses that afflict those uh, who whom he sees. It's not only the, her immediate rising is also a great lesson for us. Right? Spiritual life immediately brings us into the joyful service of Christ. So if he is Lord, then what do we say to that? We say to that that he is worthy of your trust. Jesus is a wonderful Savior because he, as the God-man, is able to save. He's able to protect. He is powerful enough to heal you from your sins, from your afflictions, from your sinful nature, from your condemnation. He is Lord. He is also a stunning servant. He is Lord and he is also a servant. We read here this use of Isaiah 53 where Jesus heals many and he takes our illnesses and bears our diseases, which is from Isaiah 53, he took our illnesses and, and bore our diseases. It brings the, 
the servant's heart of Christ right up against his divine power and authority, the one who touches the hand of uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and she is instantly healed. The divine authority brought right up against his stunning servanthood. And we, we learn something about how these healings are happening. They are happening because he is the one who is bearing sin in himself. He is the one who is bearing the curse in himself, who has stooped so that he may heal and make alive. He has become poor so that those who are poor might become rich. This is the, the, the mystery in Christ that a faithful, believing heart can only worship. You will never plumb completely the depths of this wondrous mystery. You come to it, and all you can do is worship the God-man for his uh, unbelievable authority and stunning servanthood brought right up one against the other. And so Samuel Rutherford says, it is our heaven to lay many weights and burdens upon Christ. Why? Because he is able to save. He is willing to save. He is Lord and he is servant. He is a wonderful Savior. We used in our affirmation of faith this morning Colossians chapter 1, which to me really is one of the, the, the passages that shows the value of the atonement because it says that Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God, that the, the glory of the God-man for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to, do, to dwell, it says in verse 19. And then in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, King of kings and the Lord of lords, makes peace by the blood of his cross. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your love, your devotion, your awe. Worship the God-man. Behold your Savior. Behold your Savior. As you set out on a new year, this is the calling which will never change for you from year to year, from month to month, from week to week, day to day, hour to hour, to behold your Savior, to come to Jesus. John Owen says, one of the greatest privileges the believer has, both in this world and for eternity, is to behold the glory of of Christ. Beholding the glory of Christ, he will go on to say, is the dawning of heaven. And so if heaven dawns in the heart of the believer by beholding the glory of Christ, you see how those things, the, 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 the constraints, the worries, the anxieties that often weigh us down here, and even the sense in which time marches on from year to year, and as you set out on a new year, and, and you can't help but think along those lines in some sense, but as you behold the glory and the beauty of Christ, those things tend to fade away because each and every day, what does it become? An opportunity to behold the glory and the beauty of Christ. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask that you be with us. That in this year you would, by your grace and spirits, cause us to come to Jesus day by day. To behold him, the one who is Lord and servant the one who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our love, devotion, and awe. And may a joy-filled, sacrificial love and service flow forth 
from this thick, active, sturdy, vital faith, faith in the gospel of grace, faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and King. We pray in his name. Amen. We'll stand together.